the last few weeks we've sort of developed a pattern. <coughs> we, we were talking about the godly soul and the animal soul. And I gave you two classes on the godly soul. In the first class on the godly soul, I defined for you the essence of the godly soul and we used a term to indicate the so-called essence of the godly soul. We used the word pnimi. I didn't make that word up. I'm not bright enough. You understand? If I say something intelligent, you know it has a source. Okay? The idea that the neshamas are pnimi biyetzen. And we talked about that various different aspects emerge from it, including very significantly freedom, free will, free choice. <coughs> the week after that, we talked about the neshama's need for teda and mitzvahs. Although the neshama is godly and it's a pnimi, the Jew needs Judaism. Although ultimately the source of the soul is higher than the source of teda and mitzvahs itself, but the source of the soul is hidden from the conscious soul. And a Jew connects with his own roots and mitzvahs, and it's symbiotic. The Jew needs Judaism to connect him to his source, and once the Jew has connected to his source, Judaism needs the Jew to bring Yiddishkeit to a level which is even higher, which is called Lishma, doing Yiddishkeit to do the Torah a favor. Last week, we started discussing the animal song. And again, we coined a phrase, again, I didn't make it up, it says in my modem, to identify the so-called essence of the animal soul. And the word that we employed last week was tiv'i. A nature. The, the, the essence, the core, the inherent condition of the animal soul is that he's fixed in a certain nature. So the contrast between the godly soul and the animal soul is for the godly soul we use the word pnimi, which connotes many different things, including the idea that the godly soul is free, and the animal soul is called Tivi. That although the animal soul's essence, and we talked about essence last week also, means its relationship with itself, it's a very deep thing, perhaps it's even an infinite thing, but it's fixed. It's fixed in a certain nature, which by itself it cannot exceed, it can't step outside of it. It's sort of trapped in its own personality. And as a result, it's not free. Free means it doesn't have every possibility. Now is the fourth class in this sequence which is, now that we talked about the character of the animal soul, uh, we're not going to talk about what the animal soul does, the function of the animal soul. But I must give an introduction. Because if I don't give this introduction, I'm going to frighten you away. My fear is that even after I give the introduction, I'll still frighten you away. But at least I'll be able to say, I tried. So I want to begin this class with an introduction. And after we do the introduction, I am beseeching all of you to keep this introduction in mind. The class is going to take some time. The introduction is not hear it, process it, and forget about it. The introduction is the foundation of everything we're going to be discussing tonight. Because a little bit, when you learn the severe parts of the Tanya, it can be very depressing. And it's not supposed to be depressing. And the way to offset that depression is to keep in mind this foundation that I'm going to share with you right now. The Gemara tells us, The Talmud says, Taylor is not in heaven, Taylor is on earth. In other words, the way law, halacha, is determined, the legal dimension of Taylor is determined by human beings. There's many details to the famous story in Gemara and Mesechta Bab Metziah about an argument amongst the rabbis. And one of the rabbis wanted to invoke 
the support of heaven, and the other rabbi said that heaven is not entitled to an opinion. So Gemara Farashis. It's a explicit it's a very famous Gemara. On the other hand, we find in many different sources, including a classic source of Edis Akedish and Memi Panu, who says that is actually primarily in heaven. It's primarily spiritual, sublime. And the trade as it comes down to the physical level is secondary. This obvious conflict is Taita centered on earth or is Taita centered in heaven can be explained. First of all, Taita exists in every world. In every world there's Taita. And the Taita changes from world to world because the Taita reflects the soul, the purpose, the blueprint of each individual world and accordingly the Taita is modeled. Or the world is modeled to reflect the Taita. You can say it both ways. But in each world there's a different form, a different seer, a different garment to the Taita that's consistent with that world. When it comes to practice, when it comes to actual doing things, practice can only be done in one place. There's no mitzvahs in heaven. Because there's only mitzvahs on earth, we say, Taita le bashmai, is not in heaven. In the heavens they can study Taita, but in the heavens they can't fix what to do because there's no such thing as action in the heavens. But in as much as learning, studying Taita is concerned, not only is there also the study of Taita in heaven, to the contrary, there's more study of Taita in heaven than there is on earth. In other words, they understand it better, they learn it deeper, and they appreciate it in a more pure, more holy, and a more precise dimension. So the, the resolution is, in terms of practical halacha, teda leba shamayim, teda is not in heaven. But in terms of philosophy and theology, teda is first in heaven and second on earth. So what we're going to say is, that there's different levels of the teda. The teda has been given to us on earth. There is the mirror of this teda. There's the equal and opposite, or the equal and corollary of this teda, as it is in the heavens. There are many levels of heaven, and correspondingly the different levels of so I want to share with you an idea and it's critical that we appreciate this idea clearly and that we hold on to it as the foundation of tonight's class and that is Taira on earth Taira ba'aretz Taira on earth which means practical Judaism halachic Judaism Yiddishkeit that's defined by do's and don't do's categorizes everything we see around us into three categorizations three groups Choiv, that means compulsory, mandatory, you must do. Those are called mitzvahs. Isid, you're not allowed to do. It's prohibited. You're not permitted to do such and such. And in between choiv and isid, there's something called rishus. Rishus means it's free for you to use at your own discretion. There are aspects of this world which a Jew must use to perform a mitzvah, like leather for tefillin, or leather for mezuzah, or bread, wheat for matzah, or wine for dalad kaisis, and for kiddush, and for avdala, and so forth. Then there is iser, there's a proportion, a, a, a portion, a section of God's world, which is not allowed, today for food is not permitted, dangerous things are not permitted. And in between those two categories, there's really the majority of what exists on this planet, and the majority of what exists, what exists on this planet is governed neither by choyv nor by yesed. You don't have to use it, nor are you pro- prohibited from using it. It's your discretion. 
It's your choice. And most of what we see around us falls under that category. There's a significant area of things we must do. There's a significant area of things we're not allowed to partake of. And, but most of what we see in, in this world is just do as you wish. This is tighter on earth. Which means, in simple words, if food is kosher, if the clothing are kosher, if the car is kosher, if the home is kosher, if the vacation is kosher, why not? It's permitted. There's absolutely no reason in the world people should not partake of the blessings of the material world. But then there is something called Taita Bashamayim, Taita in heaven. It's much, much more black and white. It's either in the service of God or it's not in the service of God. And here is where the plot thickens. People who study Kabbalah and Hasidus. People who study what's called the soul of the Taita, Nishmosa is a Primius Taita. What does it mean? In simple terms, it means being an earthling, partaking of the heavenly version of the Torah. That's what it means. Studying Sai, studying Kabbalah, and as it's translated to the common person in the world of Hasidus, means accessing the heavenly Torah as an earthling. Now, accessing the heavenly Torah as an earthling could be quite intense because as a human being on this planet, to see reality as black and white without gray can, can drive you nuts. It's just too much. Therefore, traditionally, Kabbalah and Said was for tzaddikim. <coughs> what was the reason only great tzaddikim learned Kabbalah? Because the concepts are too difficult? The philosophy is not, it's not that difficult. It's difficult also, but it's because of the level of Avodah Hashem, the level of personal uh, perfection that is assumed for a person who's involved in Kabbalah. The assumption is if you are involved in Kabbalah, you live in a world where if it's not good, it's evil. If it's not in the service of God, it's Tumah. And the great Mukabalim, the holy people of the golden era of Kabbalah, lived on that level. And that's why, as a practical matter, Kabbalah was such an exclusive thing. Now comes Hasidus. Now comes Hasidus and reveals Soid, reveals what used to be the property of Kabbalists to ordinary people. And says, even though you're ordinary, right? The Hebrew word for ordinary is Benini. And you've probably discovered by now there's nothing ordinary about Benini either. Even though, even though you're ordinary, we're going to give you a taste. We're going to give you an insight into the heavenly dimension of the Torah. And that's what the Tanya is. And therefore, Rabbi said, when you study the Tanya, it is very, very important to keep in mind that the Tanya is not being mean. The Tanya is not being brutal. The Tanya is raising you to a different level. It's raising you to a higher place. And it's teaching you the truth on a higher level. What we try to do by partaking of the Tanya is first of all and foremost, primarily, to get the truth. The truth means I'm willing to hear what it is even if I'm very far away from it. Once we hear the truth, we try to figure out how to bring a little bit of that truth, even a small percentage, a small portion of that truth into our practical lives. And that's the issue that we're going to be exploring tonight. We talked last week about Nevesha Bahamas, about the animal soul. We defined Nevesha Bahamas as a TV, as a being that even though he has an essence, his essence is fixed and so forth. 
Today we're going to talk about the animal soul does. And we're going to discover something very, very interesting. That in the Kabbalah world, in the Torah in heaven realm, anything which is not serving God directly is not good. On earth, anything which is not a sin is okay. As long as it's not bad, it's fine. There's so much that's up to our discretion. It's not considered a sin. God said you're not allowed, so it's fine. When you're studying Torah as it's appreciated in the heavenly realm, if it's not good, there's something wrong with it. So you have to, so to speak, approach this subject in two steps. First, simply intellectually, to hear the message. And then the second step, say, now what does it mean to me in my practical life? You can't get depressed by this. You know, how many people learn the Tanya and say, oh, one Aveda, I'm a Russia, I don't like the Tanya. No, 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 don't dislike the Tanya. Because what the Tanya is doing is giving you a very, very profound level of truth. Honesty about yourself that without the Tanya you don't have. It's in your best interest to hear the message of the Tanya strictly intellectually. Departmentalize, separate yourself from it. Hear the truth of the message of the Tanya. It will make you a little more honest. It'll make you a little more honest in your Avedis Hashem life. This is in essence how people like us relate uh, to the Sefer Tanya Kaddish. And the issue, like I said to you before, is that we are studying Tanya, which is giving us the neshama of the Torah. And on the level of the neshama of the Torah, there's no such thing as neutral. If it's not good, it's bad. Okay? The, the first uh, point, or the first form that I wish to introduce you to, is the following. The Alter Rebbe says, in chapter 6, in Perik Vav, there's only two things, not three. And they're called Sitra de Kedusha, the side of holiness, and Sitra Achra. Sitra Achra means the other side. So the Alter Rebbe says, what is the meaning of the side of holiness and the other side? It means, first of all, if it ain't holy, it's the other side, period. If it's not holy, it's not in the middle. If it's not good, it's bad. There's no such thing as neutral. And he defines... He says, Sita the Kedusha, the side of the holiness means anything which is nullified to God. Holiness means something which is subservient to God. To be holy means your identity has to be in a state of service. Like, there are rare individuals, right? There are very special people who we don't only call pure, we actually call them holy. Right? Even special people, usually if the person is pure, they're very, very elevated. But some very, very special people, we actually denote the illusion, holiness. What does it mean to be holy? My entire identity is in servitude. When a Jew is nullified, is bottled, Hashem is considered holy. When you do a mitzvah, you're putting aside your will, your ego, to do what God wants, that's what holiness is. So, Sitta the Kedusha means something which is directly in the service of God. Sitra Akhra doesn't mean directly in the service of the devil. Sitra Akhra simply means not in the service of God. It's a heavenly perspective. It's a severe, from our point of view, a severe sense of the way we live our lives. But you have to keep in mind that you're getting a heavenly perspective of our earthly lives. And the heavenly perspective of our earthly lives says... There's not three things, there's two things. Either it's bottled Hashem, it's serving God, or it's not serving God. This is the, the foundation of tonight's class. 
Go ahead. Uh, is mitzvahs specifically selfless? The aspect of a mitzvah is selfless is the fact that you're doing it. Why should you do it? But it is mitzvahs, it has selfishness in it, no? What's the selfishness of a mitzvah? By doing it, you you know, commit, you know, you that, that's the, the selfish part that you you doing a mitzvah is still a selfish thing. You know? How is it selfish? Because you're doing it for you also, you're going doing it for yourself. God told you to do something and you're listening to him. Where's the self involved? The reward. The reward, the meaning, fine. But the essence of the mitzvah is... So what if you don't get reward, you don't do it? The, no, but, that, but that's part of a no. mitzvah. It's no. got to be something. No, it shouldn't be. It should be because so, that's you feel good about but something, you if, you, if you, you give tzedakah, it's a mitzvah, right? If, but by doing that, you feel good about it. That's, a, that's, a that's also part of right, that, that's, that's, that's a selfish thing. Of course. That's right. Of course it is. Okay. Agreed, but you're doing something that God said, and because you're doing a holy act, there, there's an aspect of holiness there also. There's an aspect of servitude, of, of giving yourself to God in it as well. The dynamics will leave for a different time, but there's both. Even if there is a personal gratification in doing a mitzvah, there's also the idea of doing what God said. Now, having said this, I want to break this up into two categories. This idea that when something does not serve God, if something is not bottle, if something is not serving God, it's automatically klipa, is automatically unclean, has two levels. And the two levels are called klipas noiga and sholosh klipas atmeyas legamri. I'll translate this in English as best as I can. Klipas noiga means a klipa, means a peel, a shell, which is called noiga. Noiga means a dim light. And klipas tmeas legamri means a peel, which is representing the completely spiritually unclean uh, energies or completely spiritually unclean aspects in Hashem's creation. I'm going to explain to you what this means. First of all, let's translate the word klipa. I've done this before, I want to do it again. The translation of the word klipa means a peel, a shell. What's the connotation? The connotation is everything is a spark of God inside of itself. If it didn't have a spark inside of itself, it simply would not exist. That spark wants to connect to God. The peel, the shell, is not <laughs> allowing it to. The covering is not allowing it to emerge. Like you have an ishama. A person has an ishama when they don't do mitzvahs, and they don't do what they're supposed to do, then ishama is a prisoner inside their body. So their body and their actions become a klipa, they become a prison around their ishama. The same is true. God created many things, to be klipa. Klipa means they have a divine spark. If they did not have a divine spark, they would not exist. But the divine spark is covered over by a shell. Klipas noiga means that the shell that's covering over the divine spark is not very thick. It's not very dense. And as a result, you can break that shell. And if you succeed in breaking that shell, you can access the light. Sha'ar klipas tmeyas, the other severe klipas means the shell is very dense. The shell is very thick. And by the virtue of the fact that the shell is very thick, if you break the shell, all you'll find is another shell. And you cannot release the spark of holiness that's hidden inside the more severe klipas. In other words, even though in Torah as it's studied in heaven, in quotations, there is only two things and not three things. 
something which is in the service of God and something which is not in the service of God. And not in the service of God is considered bad and it's called klipa. Klipa means that the godly spark is not permitted to go to its source. There are two categories in klipa. A klipa that can be kedushed, a klipa that can be fixed, and a klipa which cannot be kedushed, a klipa which cannot be fixed. And the easiest way for me to describe the difference between these two klipas is to use two Hebrew words. Mutter and Asr. What does Mutter mean? Permitted. What does Asr mean? Prohibited. Right? But there's another translation to the word Mutter. Untied. There's another translation to the word Asr. Trapped, shackled, in jail. Says the Al-Tarebbe, the difference between the less severe klipa and the more severe klipa is and forgive me, but I'm going to repeat myself. Klipa is klipa is klipa. Remember, we are studying Torah that's understood in the heavens. And Torah, as understood in the heavens, does not have a neutral. There's no middle. If it's not serving God, it's the opposite of serving God. Nevertheless, within this category of not serving God, there are things that are not serving God that can be made to serve God. And there are things that are not serving God that can never be made to serve God. And the easiest way to illustrate is to use these Hebrew terms. Mutter means untied. There are things in this world that are not holy, but they're not trapped. They're not, they're not imprisoned in unholiness. And because they're not trapped, they're not imprisoned in unholiness, they can be made holy. For example, kosher food. Kosher food is not holy. And as Torah is learned in the heaven, because kosher food is not holy, because kosher food is not serving God, it's not good, but it's not tied down. It's not trapped, which means to say you can make it holy. Today the food is called asur. Asur, in addition to meaning, prohibited also means shackled, tied down. Tied down means I can't fix it. So kosher food and trefa food are both clipper. But kosher food the Jew can make into kedusha. Tefa food cannot be made into Kedush. Kosher, kosher clothing and non-kosher clothing. Right? What's the simplest example of non-kosher clothing? Clothing that's made of wool and linen together. Shatnes. Also they had ice. Kosher clothing or clothing. They serve my purposes and my needs. They're not in the service of God. But because they're mutter, they're kosher, they're permitted, they're not tied down, I can make them holy if I use them in the service of Hashem. You cannot make wool and linen garments, shatnes, holy by the, under normal conditions. Because it's asur. Asur does not only mean prohibited. Asur means it's tied down into klip. So essentially, we have the Torah as it's learned in heaven. We really have the same three categories. But we structure them differently. Torah as it is on earth, we have three categories. What I have to do, what I'm not allowed to do, and whatever I can do whatever I want. Torah as it is in heaven, we... We also have three categories, but they're structured differently. The middle category is considered klipa. It's considered not good. Because Torah that's learned in heaven says that everything has to serve God. If it doesn't serve God, it's no good. But in things that do not serve God, some are klipas noiga. That means to say they're permitted. They can be very easily be made to serve God. And then some things are the klipas tmeas that are completely spiritually unclean. Which means to say that they cannot, under normal conditions, be made to serve God. So this is the discussion that we're having tonight. 
We're talking about the animal soul. The animal soul is an animal. The animal soul is not interested in serving God. It's interested in serving itself. And because the animal soul is interested in serving itself, not serving God, the animal soul is involved with klipas. It's involved with things that are also not in the service of God. And the Altadabba delves into this uh, topic uh, considerably, with, with a lot of uh, detail. Okay? But he makes a point. He makes a point in chapter 8. And I'm going to get ahead of myself and tell you this point right now. Because I think it's an incredibly important point. I think it's an incredibly important point. The point that the al makes is as follows. A Jew has an animal soul. An animal soul, as you know, and we talked about last week, has a nature. It's defined by a teva, by a nature. So al says in chapter 8, the animal soul of a Jew um, has temptation. It desires items of pleasure, things that give pleasure. But by nature, it desires only things that give pleasure that are permitted. The animal soul of the Jew itself is also klipa. It's also not serving Hashem, it's serving itself. But it's also called klipas naiga, the less of the severe klipas. Therefore, the nature of the animal soul of the Jew is to desire temptation. It wants things that give pleasure, but only things that are kosher. The animal soul of a Jew, by its own nature, does not want to eat treif. Does not want to wear clothing, not allowed to wear, drive a car it shouldn't drive, do work it shouldn't do, and so forth and so on. But if it's permitted, why not? It's indulge. So the Alter Rebbe says that when the animal soul of a Jew sins, there's a process of desensitization. In other words, for an animal soul of a Jew, not just to enjoy a permitted temptation, but to actually do an Aveda, to actually sin, to partake of something which is in the more severe category of Klippa, which is not called Mutter untied, but called Osir, tied down, the animal soul actually has to lose some of its sensitivity, has to become desensitized to the point where it can actually sin. In other words, when a Jew sins the first time, he feels terrible. And when a Jew sins the first time he feels terrible, doesn't mean the neshama feels terrible. The animal feels terrible. Because the Jewish animal wants to enjoy life, but it doesn't want to defy God. What happens over the course of time is you get used to sinning. And when you get used to sinning, you lose your sensitization, you lose your feel. There's an essay called Kuntus Omayag. And in the beginning of the second essay, second discourse in that book, the the author, the Rebbe Rashab, quotes a Gemara, the Talmud. But the Talmud says, the Gemara says, the way the Yitzhahara operates is gradual. Quote, This is the approach of the Yitzhahara. Hayei Mamaliyah say kach, today says do a small thing. kach, tomorrow tells you do something bigger. Ad, until eventually, Oymaliyah tells you, go and worship idols. Translates the Rebbe Rashab. The Yitzhahara can never get a Jew to sin. So he makes the Jew a pleasure seeker. A pursuer of permitted pleasures. And when we permit ourselves things that give us pleasure, that are kosher, the more we indulge in permitted pleasure, the less sensitive we are to service of Hashem. And there's a moment at which we cross over from just permitting ourselves, allowing ourselves permitted pleasures to actually doing our first sin.
But the Alfreba makes a very, very powerful argument. Sinning for the animal soul of a Jew is unnatural. And it's, it's something you have to learn. It's a desensitization. It's losing a chush. It's losing a feel. But the Yid's animal soul, by nature, wants to enjoy life. It doesn't want to sin. And sinning in the animal soul is really going against its own nature. It's adopting a, a character which is not part of its basic constitution. It's adopting a character which belongs to some other being. And it happens through enjoying the material world, not in the service of Hashem a lot, desensitizes the person until the person sort of speak, crosses over from enjoying life to actually allowing themselves to do a sin. Because sins also can be pleasurable, as some people may have heard. Of course, nobody knows that personally. It's what we read about in the books, we read in the newspaper, from acquaintances and so forth. So the Alter Rebbe says, Taira in heaven does not have a neutral. Taira in heaven says, if it's not in the service of God, it's not good. But even something which is not in the service of God can have these two categories. Mutter, it's not in the service of God, but it can be relatively easily made to the service of God. And Osr, not in the service of God, and it cannot be made to serve God because it's prohibited. What's the difference with these two categories in practical terms? What's the difference between kosher and non-kosher? Kosher is klipa, non-kosher is klipa. Permitted food is also not in the service of God. Prohibited food is not in the service of God. What's the difference? The difference is very, very simple. Whether intent makes a difference. Whether your attitude, your kavana changes anything. When it comes to material things that are permitted... In Torah Bashamayim, as Torah is interpreted in Primius HaTorah, even something which is permitted is Klippa. It's not service of God. But you can have a Kavana, you can have an intention to use it in the service of God. If you eat food, and you're eating the food so that the food should give you energy, you should serve Hashem, that food becomes holy. Moreover, if you enjoy food, it gives you pleasure. But the reason you're enjoying this food and getting pleasure is A, it's Shabbos, and it's a mitzvah on Shabbos to enjoy your food, or B, it's not Shabbos, and you're enjoying your food because as you enjoy your food, your mind opens up, it expands your intellectual possibilities, and you can think more clearly and study, understand the Torah better, that food is made holy because you have used that food in the service of God. The Gemara says that, the, this doesn't say in the Tanya, but the Gemara says that the clothing we wear honor us. And if a person wears honorable clothing, because when he feels honored, he feels like a better person and a better servant of God, he makes his food, his clothing holy. Because since it's mutter, since it's not tied down, it's not trapped in klipa, although it's not holiness, although it's not nullified, although it's not serving God, but because it's untied, your intent, your attitude, the reason you partake of it changes it. If you eat kosher food, you wear kosher clothing, you drive a kosher car, you live in a kosher home, whatever it is that we partake of, if we do it kosher, and our intention is to serve God, those physical things, those physical acts, even if they involve pleasure, become holy acts. That means they become in the service of God, they become nullified to God, they become bottled to Hashem. And if you would ask the Alter Rebbe, and you learn the Tanya, the Tanya says every single act a person does must be in the service of God. So the food we eat, we eat to be healthy, we eat to be strong, to serve God, which means we don't overeat. <laughs> 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 
Even if we enjoy our food, we enjoy our food because the, the, the pleasure we get from our food helps us serve God, then the food becomes holy. Go ahead. So if there's three levels in this world, like there's allowed, not allowed, neutral, why can't someone just spend their whole life just doing allowed and why do they have to cross over to, do, to sin? Like why can't they just have the, just always do the permissible, like always do the neutral thing? Because this is the human nature. The human nature is... It's like everything else. Sensitivity has to be preserved. Sensitivity is a very, very, very... It's a very, very... Uh, sensitive, difficult to grasp kind of an idea. It's like a person who listens to good music or a person who plays good music. If you stop, you lose that feel. You have to regain it. This is true in every aspect of life. People whose life is defined by the pursuit of pleasure lose their sensitivity to holiness. You can't maintain both. So what ends up happening is you have a choice. The choice is not whether to sin or not to sin. The choice is whether to make the center of your life pleasure and the service of God is something that you have to do or make the center of your life the service of God and pleasure is one of the things that we do. And the difference is that if we make the center of our life pleasure we always want more. That's the nature of material pleasures. And the more we want, the less, the more Yiddishkeit becomes something which we're doing as a slave. And inevitably, invariably, we reach a point where we're weak. We don't have the strength to tell our Yitzhah how to know when he wants us to have a pleasure which is prohibited because we're so tuned into pursuing pleasures. You understand? The Yitzhah is not part of the animal soul? Yitzhah is the animal soul. It's the emotions of the animal soul. Yes, it so is. How does it have Because the re- repeated indulgence in permitted pleasures takes away its feel, takes away its nature, it coarsens it. So how do we resensitize the animal soul? And the answer is, we call it in the Chabad culture, well, it is kafia. Kafia means we don't have to allow ourselves every indulgence. So how do you, a person has, like you said, you have a person has desires. Control that. You control those desires by not allowing yourself even desires that are permitted. How? You choose to. <laughs> you just say no. What's going to have that? You choose to. But that's a big test. It's, it's not a big test. It's a big challenge. It's not a test whether we bring it on ourselves or God brings it onto us. A challenge we bring onto ourselves. You're challenging yourself to become more refined. You're challenging yourself to live for a higher purpose. You define what thing you want to stop and you make yourself stop. If you have bad eating habits, for example, and you adopt good eating habits, the good eating habits affect a lot more than your diet. They They affect your clarity in your brain. But if you're, if you're a Jew, you do it not for health, but for the service of Hashem. So now, getting back to, let's go back to the point there, okay? Permitted tithes, permitted things, are also called klipa. This is the message of tonight's class. If it's permitted, then it's not in the service of Hashem, it's called klipa. But because it's permitted, intent makes a difference. Kavana makes a difference. If I use it to, the, to serve Hashem, it becomes holy. If I take food, clothing, and a home, a car, and I use it in the service of Hashem, that food becomes holy. 
have an interesting little story as an illustration. It was a wealthy chassid. This is an interesting story. It was a wealthy chassid. Who was, it was rich, but he was also a real chassid. Which means to say he aspired for a higher level of spirituality. He wasn't just a Jew who did mitzvahs, wrote checks, and lived on the fat of the land. He actually davened and refined his character and so forth. So he comes to his Rebbe and says, Rebbe, Rebbe, give me a diet. What should I eat? And of course his intent was that the Rebbe should give him a diet that should not allow him material indulgences, although he could afford it. He says, the Rebbe tells him, every year you should eat white bread and meat. Now, this may be a surprise to you, but in Europe, white bread and meat were considered the food of rich people. Today, white bread and meat is considered unhealthy. So <laughs> you're eating black bread and fish <laughs> until they make the fish unhealthy. Uh, no one will be eating uh, cherries, and that'll become unhealthy too. <laughs> but in any case, she says, Rebbe, Rebbe, I'm coming to you as a chassid, and I'm asking you to give me a diet that involves discipline and self-control. And you're telling me to allow myself every indulgence? So the Rebbe says, if you eat hard bread and, and boiled eggs, the poor people in your town are going to starve. If you eat white bread and meat every day, the poor people in town are going to eat fine. So for that person, because of his condition in the community, his using material things for himself made him more sensitive to feeding and helping other people. So it becomes Yiddishkeit. It becomes Avedis Hashem. This is the way it works with permitted things. Permitted things are klipa, but intent, kavana changes it. If you use it in the service of Hashem, it becomes holy. Now, if you partake of kosher things, permitted things, mutter things, with no particular intent, you're not thinking about serving Hashem, you're not thinking about satisfying pleasures, you're just partaking, whether it's food or clothing or other things. So before you partook of it, it was called Klipas Naiga. It was called Klipa. Klipa means it wasn't serving Hashem, it wasn't holy. But it's not tied down. And after you've partaken of it, it continues to be exactly the same. Just as the animal soul of the Jew himself, it's Klipas Naiga. Klipa means it's not serving Hashem. But Naiga means it could be made to serve Hashem. We partake of physical things, material things, with no particular intent before we use them. <coughs> they were Klipa. That means to say they're not in the service of Hashem. But Noiga, they could made the service of Hashem, but they have not been utilized. So when, after you've eaten or dressed or driven or whatever it is, it remains what it was before you used it. And then of course there's a third possibility. And the third possibility is when you use material things for the purposes of satisfying your desires, your pleasures. So after Rebbe says, when a person uses physical things in order to satisfy their desires, so those entities, those aspects of Klipas Noiga become more severe. When people allow themselves material indulgences, even if they're kosher, just for the sake of experience, pleasure, the food is dragged down. It becomes, it becomes worse. In other words, when you use physical things that are by themselves kosher, and you're using them and you have no holy intent, to the contrary, doing it just for animal intentions, it's temporarily dragged down. It becomes the more severe cleep. It becomes worse. However... As long as one is partaking of things which are permitted, as long as one is partaking of things which are kosher, they're very easy to correct. Now, if we don't sin, even if we indulge in material pleasures, it's relatively easy to fix. How? Let's say you enjoyed food, and you're enjoying the food just because you want to indulge. And of course, the nature of the pursuit of 
temptation and pleasure is that it begots itself. The way God made human beings is the more you enjoy a pleasure, the more you want to pursue it further. The expression is, Man does not leave his world without having satisfied half of his desires because whatever desires you've permitted yourself only creates a greater appetite. So Dr. Rebbe says, when you have, someplace else in the Tanya, when you indulge in permitted temptations just for the sake of pleasure, where you're, so to speak, dragging the food or the clothing or whatever it is down, if you, after the fact, use it to serve God, it's raised up. If you ate went to a restaurant, you enjoyed a meal, and you didn't think about God for half a second. So that food is not holy at all. But if you later use the energy you got from that food in the service of God, that food is elevated. Because it's muttered. Mutter means it's not tied down. It's klipa. Klipa means it's not in the service of God, but it's noiga. Noiga means it could be made into the service of God. This is the middle category. And then of course the more... Go ahead. Is it okay, like, let's say you go, you eat whatever, just for the sake of eating, and then you just, like, give tzedakah. Is that using that energy to do a mitzvah? Is that elevating the last food, or you have to really use that? Like, you have to really use that energy to elevate that food. I was once teaching Beisifka girls in high school. I know you don't go to Beisifka, but this is school. <laughs> so, so I was having a, I was very young and stupid at the time. Um, <laughs> so I was foolish enough to get in conversation with them about going shopping. Now teenagers and shopping is like is like like uh, <laughs> aerobic beings and oxygen. <laughs> and um, so I told them, listen, everything you do has to be in the service of God. She says, sure, we go to the train, we stand at the foot of the stairs and we say, we are now going shopping to serve God. Then we get on the train and we have a great time. <laughs> they only said they want to serve God to clear their conscience. They're not thinking about God, they're thinking about it. So I tried to explain to them, that's not called Hashem Shomayim, it's for the sake of you. You're trying to make the treif kosher, so you come up with this, this trick. You have to, it, it means to be in the service of Hashem. Now, but then the Altarab says, what about treif? Non-kosher. Non-kosher is called iser. And the meaning of the word iser means it's tied down. The Hebrew word which is frequently used to connote iser is golos. Exile. What is the definition of being in exile? What is the definition of being in jail? There's one criteria. That you don't have the key to yourself. Something which is in Golos, it means it's trapped. It's at the mercy of somebody else. We're talking about godliness. Everything that exists has a godly spark. If it didn't have a godly spark, it wouldn't be. In Shalosh Klippus Atmeis, in the severe Klippus, the godly spark is exiled and it cannot be freed. Not only cannot, can it not free itself, you can't free it and I can't free it. When a Jew partakes of things which are not allowed, intent changes very little. When you partake of things which are permitted, although they're called klipa, that means they're not in the service of God, but because they're noiga, you can change them, you can correct them. Intent matters enormously. Your kavana changes completely the effect of you on that thing and that thing on you. When it comes to things which are prohibited, which are not allowed. So first of all, it's called klipa. Klipa means it's not in the service of God. But it's completely tommy. That means to say, it's not the kind of thing that can be elevated because the spark of God in that item is trapped. It's in golos. And because it's in golos, you can have the best intentions. You cannot release 
a spark from prison that you don't have the key to. And that's the idea of also. So you can't touch this. You can't touch this because you cannot elevate it. Your intentions will not elevate it. And this is what we call sin. And when it comes to sin in the strictest sense of the word, intent changes very little. Treif is treif. doesn't matter what your thoughts are. Not permitted is not permitted. doesn't matter what your thoughts are. So permitted, klipa is still klipa, but intent matters completely. Prohibited klipa, although it has a spark of God, because it's prohibited, intent matters not at all. Uh, the three three words that you can't elevate. What is the difference then? If you it's chesed. That's all. But if you can't elevate any of them, then why is there a three? Then what's chesed gevurah tefes. Right. That's all. They're in the same category. They're just different. The, the three cardinal sins are idolatry and mm-hmm. adultery and murder. Murder is gevurah. So it's just the different and types, but... Different, right, yes, of course. Not that you can maybe later elevate no, one of them? No, no. But Pashtas not. On a simple level, no. Go ahead. Is everything physical in the world that's permitted called Klippanova? Yes. Yes, exactly. In other words, the, 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 the foundation of this class is that we're studying a perspective of this world that is understood in the heavens. And is understood in the heavens, if it's not serving Hashem, it's klipa. It doesn't have to be bad to be klipa. It has to be not good to be klipa. Go ahead. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We're getting to that. Wait, wait. Now, we're talking now about Isid, about the more severe category of klipa. The more severe category of klipa means the spark of godliness is trapped in its place, in its level, in its circumstance, in its condition. And as a consequence, intent doesn't make a difference. A person partook of something which is not good, it's, it's, it's bad, it's terrible. Okay? But there are a few things, a few stipulations that need to be made. Stipulation number one, there's a concept of children. The person sins, the person sins, they can repent. They can return to God. Conventionally, when a person sins and returns to God, it means only one thing. That they will not be punished. But not being punished is not the same thing as having been cleansed. For a sin you get punished. You have to be given back what you did. To use the Hebrew, when you sin, you are rebelling against God and you have to be punished for the rebellion. When you return to God, when you uh, tell God you regret having rebelled, you're not punished for the rebellion. However, not being punished is not the same thing as being cleansed. The Hebrew word for the cleansing, for the, for the spiritual wounding is called pagam, a wound, a blemish, a blemish in the soul, a blemish in the world, and the blemish of the heavens. Tshuva affects you shouldn't be punished. But it does not affect that you're cleansed. The person did not Veda. And this conventional tshuva, ordinary tshuva, the person ate not kosher, the tshuva, they're not going to be punished. But they're not kosher, still not kosher. And the ill effect of that not kosher lingers in that person. Because what they've done through doing tshuva is gotten Hashem to forgiven them for the bad choice. But it has not removed the bad effect of the Aveda. Wait. 
So tshuva is effective not to be punished, but tshuva is not effective to be cleansed. So how do you get cleansed? So the Alter Rebbe makes, gives you two uh, possibilities. The first possibility is you have to wait till the end of time. I didn't say the red cow, you did. Because what happens at the end of time, they shouldn't be punished. They shouldn't be punished. But we're talking, there's two different things. One is not to be punished, and the other is to be cleansed. They're not the same thing. Okay? So the first solution is to wait till the end of time. What happens at the end of time? At the end of time, Hashem takes away all evil. Our entire existence, according to Kabbalah, is to slowly but surely elevate sparks, right? Correct, correct some of the evil in the world. Elevating a spark means separating the good from the evil and raising the good up and the evil goes away. But as much as we're busy elevating sparks, there's always going to be more. We'll never finish. So God finishes. When God removes the evil from the world, He removes the evil from the person. But that sounds like a very, very bad idea, right? <laughs> the idea that if a person doesn't have Aida, and they do tshuva, so they're not punished, but they're not cleansed, they have to wait till the end of time to be cleansed, makes people very nervous. So there's another solution. Another solution is real, but not simple. The other solution is to do a very high level of tshuva. Not an ordinary tshuva, but an extreme tshuva. The extreme tshuva is called, quote, tshuva out of love. When a person does tshuva out of love, which I'm going to describe to you and explain to you momentarily, not only are they not punished, but the, the ill effect, the desensitization effect of the sin is reversed. They're cleansed. They're purified. And Dr. Rebbe explains it in very, very practical terms. When a person does something wrong, it's like a blemish, a wound on themselves, right? A person, was, a person had a wound. They were sick. They recovered, there's a scar. The scar doesn't go away. It's there. When a person doesn't have a person sins, they've created this, a, a, an ill, a scar on their soul, so to speak. A desensitization to their psyche, to their spiritual self. You do tshuva, you're not punished, but it's not reversed. But there's one exception to the rule. And the exception to the rule is when you do this higher level of tshuva. What's the idea of this higher level of tshuva? So the Rebbe describes it as follows. When you sin, you feel far away from God. Not only you are far away from God, you feel that way. In other words, if at the core of Judaism there's a sensitivity, if at the core of Judaism there's a certain sensitivity, a sin makes, takes the sensitivity away. Many sins weaken that sensitivity enormously. A person can virtually reach a point where they don't feel anymore. They have no sensitivity. We call that a complete rush. Not they sin, they have no conscience. They don't care. And if a person wakes up one day and wants to serve God and finds that they cannot, the reason they cannot serve God is because they have no feel. They're numb. And their lack of feeling for Hashem frustrates them. What ends up happening is that the negative becomes a positive. A person wants to serve God. You know, this is an experience which a lot of people can relate to. I want to do something. I know what I want to do and I can't do it. Right? I want to exercise. I want to not eat this cake. I know exactly what I want to do. It's still sitting in the plate in front of me and I'm helpless. That's weakness. 
That weakness developed through repeated allowances. We, desens- we lose our sensitivity, we lose our feel by permitting ourselves all kinds of different things. When a person gets frustrated from that weakness, it's the weakness itself which is creating the frustration. Sometimes a person is so weak, so helpless, that the frustration and the desperation and the desire to change becomes so powerful that it is the weakness that generates the power of tshuva itself. The lack of fear when a person sees how helpless they are to control themselves and their pain, they agonize by their inability to control themselves, that pain itself frees them from the desensitization. So the Alter Rebbe says, when a person is doing tshuva, and it's not simply doing tshuva, God, don't punish me. Don't be angry at me. Forgive me. I had a, I had a lapse. I'm human. So you're not punished. But when the person's tshuva is not simply not to be punished, but when the person's tshuva means I love God, I want a relationship with God, and my actions prevent me from feeling God, I've lost my feel, I've lost my sensitivity, the pain involved in that process cleanses. It cleans. It doesn't simply affect that the person should not punish, it resensitizes the person. Al-Tarebbe says when a person has sinned, and the sin makes them insensitive, and the insensitivity makes them in pain, the pain can be so strong that it's the pain that gives them a resensitization effect. They get their sensitivity back. Then the Rebbe says, the Gemara says, in that circumstance, when a person does tshuva on this level, the sin becomes a merit. Because it's the energy of the sin which brought about the tshuva. It's the, de- the lack of sensitivity that created the urge. It, it's, it's the expression of hitting rock bottom. When it can't get any worse, it gets better. When a person is in a position where they're so in pain because they're far away from God that it propels them closer to Hashem. So it's the distance from God that created that energy. So the sin is not only something which the person is not punished for, the sin becomes something for which the person, it becomes a merit, it becomes a good thing. What did Hashem continue to punish Moses? Wait, wait, talk about Moses another time. Let's, let's if you don't mind. No. The Alter Rebbe explains this in very simple terms. Let me think about it. In, in, I'll give you a simple physical analogy, okay? Now, I'm not much of an expert on, uh, on, uh, on uh, the creation of weapons. But think about this analogy. If the analogy is wrong, forgive me, but I think that this is true. A hand grenade. I've never held one in my life, okay? I've seen pictures. not very big. You're a hero. <laughs> Heroin. Okay. It can kill a dozen people. Literally. It's a small little device. What is the incredible power, destructive power of, 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 a, of, a, of an explosive this small? The answer is, it's two opposite forces. The grenade has a shell that's made of steel and it's quite thick and it's strong. Inside there's an explosive. The explosive is expanding the casing is holding that power of expansion. When the explosive winds become stronger than the force that's holding the explosive in, and it's ripped apart into tiny little pieces of shrapnel, which go in a thousand different directions, 
The force of that grenade is not just the explosive. It's the explosive compounded by the resistant force of the casing itself. It's two opposite forces which creates a far greater force. The same is true in this concept of tshuva. The power of the generation of this tshuva comes because of this <coughs> If the person hadn't sinned, they wouldn't have that negative feeling, they wouldn't have that powerful force. And since it's the negative power of the sin, which is the reason that positive energy is generated, the sin becomes a merit. So to summarize what we've discussed so far, when we're dealing with the category of klipa called shara klipas tmeis, severe klipa, asur, asur means I am not in a position to redeem the spark of godliness which is inside klipa, Intent matters not at all. It doesn't make a difference what you think. You did a sin, it's pagan. It has no effect on the nefesh. <clears throat> You're not, there's no way to elevate the severe klipas. You can't. If a person does tshuva, they're forgiven. But forgiven is not the same thing as cleansed. The blemish is still there. How are you Cleansed. The way the person is cleansed, either you have to wait till Hashem finishes mopping up all the filth in the Hebrew's world, or you do tshuva on a level of tshuva me'ahava, and then the person is cleansed because the sin itself becomes a merit because the, the sin generated the power of the tshuva itself. Okay? When you say cleanse, Rabbi, do you mean like atonement? Is that the same as atonement? There's a lot of levels in atonement. Basically, atonement, in other words, in the Nigla model, in the classic model, Atonement means that you shouldn't be punished. There is a higher level of atonement, which is cleansing. The difference in the low and the high level of atonement is this. Whether atonement simply means I'm not punished, or atonement means I'm actually purified. I'm going to come back to this later, and you'll see. Why does the person make tshuva? Yeah, because uh, if person is sensitive, let me ask you a stupid question. We live in an age of tshuva. The world has never been more comfortable. There's never been more pleasures to be had. Cheaper and easier and more available than ever in the history of the world. We're an extremely consumer-based society. Could you please tell me how people become Baile Chilva after having indulged in a life full of the pursuit of all kinds of pleasures, including prohibited pleasures? If Tivus desensitizes a person, obviously the answer is every Jew has a soul. Or to say it in different words, at a certain point you become disgusted with it. You're right, it desensitizes the person. But desensitization eventually becomes its own worst enemy. At a certain point you say, Yich, this is not life. Is this coming from, uh, from uh, Hashemayim or uh, is it generated by person himself? <coughs> just uh, that your step is for, from Hashemayim. The answer to your question honestly is that it's the same thing. It's the Hashemayim within you. You have a pintaliyid, you have an ishamah. You have a soul. 
The soul ultimately cannot be exiled. It can only be put to sleep. And sometimes it just wakes up. It's had enough. It wakes up itself? Or yeah. It wakes up because, because it's pushing from the Shemaim? Sometimes like this and sometimes not like this. Sometimes Hashem sends a... An inspiration. Right, a message. But the Rebbe says that at the end of Golos, we have people doing tshuva with no inspiration, just for themselves. <laughs> the Neshama is so sick and tired of living a meaningless life that it erupts. <laughs> part of your question is the most realistic yes tshuva is always good but if the person does the higher tshuva they're rewinding the clock they're going back to baseline if the person does the lower level of tshuva they're not rewinding the class they're not going back to baseline that means we are at any moment of our lives the sum total of our prior experiences and human nature is that an experience, a temptation we've indulged in many times, we're far more likely to indulge in. We're weaker than a temptation we've never indulged in. So let's say a person is indulging a certain weakness repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And they've done the lower tshuva, they're still more weak and vulnerable in that area than somebody else. If they've done the higher level of tshuva, they've literally reformed themselves. They've created themselves, recreated themselves. The wait, 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 wait. If a person does the higher level of tshuva, they are as they were before they sinned the first time. Now, a person before he sins the first time also has a yetzer harder. So there's two levels of being tempted. And in Tanya chapter 12, the Altarebbe describes it as follows. A permitted temptation, you desire and you desire to actually do it. A prohibited, prohibited temptation, you're drawn to, but you're not drawn to it in such a way that you want to actually do it. What this means, I will not discuss with you at the moment. As far as the first part of your question, there's a famous story with the Baal Shem Tev about such an episode. I think the answer to that question is that if a person has done the higher tshuva, they know it. I will say that I think it's an exceptional gift from God. And I will also say that it's the kind of gift if a person has experienced the higher tshuva once in his life, they're rich. 
person has experienced Ayatollah twice in their life, they're amazing. They're incredible. Because the first time God gives it to you, the second time you've got to create it yourself. When you've done the higher tshuva, you know it. Because it's becoming a new person. Not just a new person because you put on a suit and tie and grow a beard. It's not difficult to do. But spiritually become a new person. Your whole inside is cleansed and transformed. It's an incredible place to be. And an incredible place to remain. Or an incredibly difficult place to remain. The true achievement of the second level of tshuva is not that you go through the experience, but you remain in that new space. Now, there are more exceptions. I'm repeating myself, okay? If a person has done a sin, tshuva healthy shouldn't be punished. But in order to be cleansed, you have to wait either for the end of time or you have to do this tshuva out of love. There's a couple more things that have to be said on the topic. Number one, there are certain sins that are not connected to the physical world. There are certain sins that are in, in the spiritual realms alone. Sins in the mind and things of this category. The Rebbe says that sins that are spiritual, sins that are not connected to the physical world, they're not so connected to the physical world, because you have not created anything in the physical world, you don't need the higher tshuva to be cleansed. When the sin is a spiritual sin, even if you do the lower tshuva, but you do it properly, in other words, you don't do tshuva where you're disgusted with yourself and you're trying to get away from your old self, you simply do tshuva by returning to God, but you do it properly, you can be cleansed. In other words, the area of sin which, where the cleansing becomes an issue is primarily when the sins are connected to physical behaviors in the physical world. And I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not going to explain this better. Number two. Number two is a point that somebody mentioned before. You mentioned it. And that is that there are certain sins which are impossible to, to correct. And they are a sin that has left a permanent mark in the physical world. Right? There's a lower tshuva. The lower tshuva is that shouldn't be punished. The higher tshuva means that I should be reformed. I should become a new person. But if we have done a sin which has left a mark in the physical world, as long as that mark exists, if, if, the, if, if our sin is represented by something real in the material world, there's no way our souls could be cleansed. The example which is not mentioned in the Tanya, but it's the classic example, is Chilul Hashem. What does Chilul Hashem mean? Desecration of the name of God. If I've done something which has caused somebody else to hate God, or to hate Judaism, as long as that person has that hatred, I cannot fix it. Because it exists. So for this, tshuva, tshuva can help you shouldn't be punished Tshuva can help, whatever it is, but if the sin is represented by something real in the physical world, as long as that real thing exists in the physical world, and I exist in the physical world, it's irreparable. So the Gemara says, and this doesn't say in the Tanya, but the Gemara says, that for Chil Hashem, for a sin that one has committed, which causes others to disrespect God, and Yiddishkeit, could desecrate the name of God, there is no kapara as long as the person is alive. Of Chil Hashem? A religious Jew who steals. That's one example. So it's not simply a matter of taking somebody's money. It's using, in some cases, Yiddishkeit as a pretense, as, an, as a sign of your honesty in exploiting somebody else. It's a terrible sin because stealing is one thing, but the mark that you've left in that person or that person and his acquaintances 
is incredible. Unless they forgive you. Even if they forgive you. The Altarebbe gives a different example. But it's not there after it's done. That's the question. Pardon? I don't understand. You're saying it has to leave a physical mark? But once it's done, it's done. It's over. It's not. It, it, it's not. It's in the person's mind. It's in that person's... Like they say when you take money from someone, you pay them back. So you don't owe it anymore? It's a different issue. No, you, but you use that example. So that, like, I don't understand what you're saying about someone doing Chil Hashem, right? You don't understand? No. Okay. Because it's not physical. Of course it's physical. Another yeah. person has witnessed you do something wrong. That person is walking it's around. Not there anymore, the, the person is there. And their antagonism is there. You're saying the memory. It's not the memory. It's the attitude. That person's memory is also in what? From you'd ask them to put on films. From a yidin, they're corrupt. Unless you can change the memory, then you can wipe it. That's that right. And the Rebbe, the Ramam gives an example of that. Christianity is a good example. Okay. Now... It's an extreme example. The the Rebbe in Tanya gives a different analogy. The analogy that there is in Tanya somebody creates an illegitimate child. The child exists, and you can do you can feel, heal yourself. You can't heal the reality. So this is another sort of speak nuance in this whole discussion. Yeah. So here I go again, repeating myself, okay? When you're talking about the category of klipa, which is asr. In other words, I cannot elevate it. So therefore, intent doesn't matter. So if I did it a sin, I'm stuck with it. So there's several points. Tshuva helps I shouldn't be punished. The higher level of tshuva helps that I actually resensitize myself. Sins which are spiritual, not so physical, even the lower tshuva can permit a, a, a resensitization. If you do a sin which creates something which is physically presented in the real world, the tshuva doesn't take away that physical thing. And then there's one final detail. There is a difference between doing a sin by mistake and doing a sin on purpose. When you do a sin on purpose, you're, you're a rebel. You're telling God, I don't care about you. So there's several aspects. The first is the You're spitting in God's face. And the second is the the spiritual blemish and wound you make in yourself. There's a third aspect which I'm going to leave alone for the moment. If you sin by accident or you don't even know it's a sin, you haven't rebelled, you haven't done anything wrong. But the pagam and the nefesh, the ill effect on the person is there. But it's less. The Alter Rebbe says there's one category of Pagam and the Nefesh which is very, very severe. It's very bad even if you had no idea that you were sinning. And that is unique to one thing. To eating treif. Say that again. To eating not kosher. Because when you eat not kosher it becomes you and you become it. When you do another sin without intent, it also has an ill effect on the person. But it's not nearly as severe as when a person has eaten not kosher. Because when you eat not kosher, it becomes you, you becomes it. So Zatreb, if you eat trefa food, and you thought it's kosher, and you made a blessing on it, and you meditate on it, and you're eating this food simply to serve God, because you become one with the food, and the food becomes one with you, it's, it's different than any other in, in, incidental it's different than any other accidental sin because you've made yourself the sin. And it's much, much more difficult. You made yourself the, sin? the sin is in you. It's part of your blood and flesh. 
But you didn't do it. Let's say you were born in a family that wasn't kosher in the first place. You didn't do it yourself. God put you there in the first place. Yeah. So God made me sin. Oh, okay. And makes you deal with it. God made this an interesting one. I like the way you put that. It's true. That's so Go ahead. Is there no thingy also? Of course. Like trick? Yeah. I mean, like you can teach us to get a problem? No, it could be together. Of course. Oh, no, 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 no. It's not so simple. That's, it's not so simple. That's one after the other. Nishpashet. After the fact, there's a lot of ways of explaining that. It goes into issue of taste. You don't mean cooking meat and milk together, eating a cheeseburger. You mean first eating meat and then eating milk. That's different. Halakhically, it's different. So let's leave that alone, okay? It's a very, very important question. So, so, so basically, how in this case... Um, Right, so this goes into a question which in the yeshivish world, in the Talmudic world, in the Nigla world, is called the question of Hutra and Chuya. Which means to say, when I am eating treif to save a life, is the treif kosher? Or is the prohibition pushed aside? If the treif is kosher, it stops being it becomes klipas neger. If the law says that the treif is kosher, it's not klipa anymore. If the law says it's still treif, but you can partake, it gets complicated. And the reality is, if you do what God said, even if what God said is sinning, it's a good thing. <laughs> How the mysticism works, I simply don't know. Because I've never seen a direct discussion on the question. But this is the... I'm giving you the Talmudic version of it, and I don't know the mystical corollary for it. I've never seen it discussed. But it's an issue which is interesting. Al Rebbe mentions it in Tanya later on. About Hutra and Hutra. This is a, it's a question which is, which is relevant to many, many cases, many examples in Halacha and in Torah, whether it's, the idea is that we're pushing aside the Aveda or the Aveda is, no, is suspended. Okay, I'll give you an example. In the Beis Amikdash, they made fire on Shabbos to make Rabbanas. That's not suspending the prohibition of making fire. It's a mitzvah to make that fire. Correct? Mm-hmm. It's a mitzvah. When Eliyahu brought a carbon on Mount Carmel, which you're not allowed to do. That was not a mitzvah. That was a suspension of an Aveda. There's a difference between those two. And the mysticism correlates to the legal, to the halacha. But I don't know. I don't know how it resolves itself. I don't know how it works. Okay, now. We summarize what we learned so far from the beginning. Point number one. The idea of Taita in heaven versus Taita on earth. The difference is, in Taita in heaven, if it's not good, it's bad. If in Taita on earth, if it's not bad, it's okay. But in Taita in heaven, if it's not serving God, it's called Klippa. That's point one. Point two. In things that are called Klippa, we have a category called Noiga and a category called Shart Klubis Tmeis. The difference is the word Mutter or Osr. Mutter means it's untied, Osr means it's tied down. 
Untied means that my intent will change it. Tied down means my intent doesn't make a difference. Treif is treif is treif. There's no way to negotiate that. If a person partakes of permitted, mutter, if the intention is good, it's raised up. If there's no intention, it remains where it was. If there's an ill intention, it falls, but it can be more easily corrected by serving Hashem with the energy we got from that temptation, for example. But if it's treif, if it's not allowed, you can't elevate it. Tshuva effectively shouldn't be punished. But sensitization, cleansing, either has to wait till the end of time, or you have to do this higher level of tshuva called tshuva out of love. And there are many particulars that go along with all of this discussion, which I'm not going to repeat now. Okay, now, there's one more area that comes up in the discussion in Tanya that I want to share with you um, uh, this week. And that's the issue of the cleansing process. Okay? The Talmud says, the Gemara says, God forbid a person goes through hardships, tests, suffering. The Gemara says, suffering cleans a person. Sometimes people, before they pass away, suffer a lot. And the Gemara says that there were rabbis who asked for Yisurim, for suffering before they passed away, as a means of cleansing them. There's a lot of different levels. There's something called Yisurim Shal Avon, Yisurim Shal Yira. But sometimes a person goes through a hardship and that hardship cleanses them. But when a person passes away, there are two basic ideas. The first idea is punishment and the second idea is cleansing. How you're punished, they put you into a washing machine and the water is hot. How are you cleansed, they put you into a washing machine and the water is hot. So what's the difference? What's the difference between a person passing away and being punished? And of course, the word associated with punishment is Gehenim. Gehinoim, right? Purgatory, hell. And a person being cleansed. A person being cleansed, it's the same, the same hot water spin cycle as a person being punished. But it's called by other names. Like, for example, the river of fire, the Hadinur, the river of fire, which is mentioned in Tanakh and discussed at length in Gabor. To be sure, the difference really may not be in what you're experiencing. It may be simply a difference of what you are aware of. For example, if you take a person and you put them through a very, very difficult situation, you make them suffer. It's an enormous amount of pain. Come to that person, put them through the exact same suffering and show them how it's in their best interest. Does it hurt any less? The pain's identical. But the awareness that it cleanses you almost makes it a positive experience. We can't call it positive because pain is pain. But when you're right, if you are doing rigorous exercise and this rigorous exercise is going to make you healthy, as painful as it is, you value it. If you're being made to do rigorous exercise and you think you're being tortured, even the exercise is identical, it hurts. The difference really between punishment and cleansing is not the process, it's your awareness. When a neshama is being punished or sent to hell, what does that mean? They're made to go through an experience of suffering that to the neshama is useless. That's why it hurts so much. It hurts so much not because it's painful, because it's, but it's useless pain. We've had many opportunities to talk about this philosophical distinction 
that Avraham Avinu, Abraham our father, was given two choices. Golos, exile, or Gehenim, or hell, or suffering. What's the difference? Before I tell you the difference, I want to tell you the constant. The constant is you're going through an experience and you don't know the point. The worst kind of negative experiences is where you feel like it's pointless. The difference between Golos, which Avraham Avinu chose, and Gehenim is one is a drawn out experience of numbness, of no feeling. Just useless, continuous, bottomless unit of time just going on and on and on. It's not so much how much it hurts, how pointless it is. Gehenim is much quicker. It's very, very acute. It's tremendous pain. And Avraham Avinu chose Golas. Avraham Avinu felt it's preferred to have an extended experience in Golas where you're sort of in this numb state for a long period of time and you have no idea why and you have no idea when it's going to end to an acute period of Gehenim which is extremely painful also senseless to you and purposeless to you that happens over a much more sh- a shorter period of time. So what makes punishment punishment is because you're suffering you don't know the point. If a person passes away and has not done tshuva they go to Gehenim. Gehenim is two things. It cleanses and it punishes. The cleansing is the process of sensitization. The soul has to be resensitized. The punishment is the senselessness of the cleansing. The neshama does not appreciate why it's going through this uh, experience. So here's how you have to understand it. A person passes away. They go up there. They put in the washing machine. They're cleaned up. How many times did they go back into this washing machine? You're constantly revisiting the machine. Why? Because in the higher realms, you're constantly growing. It says in Kabbalah, three times a day, the neshamas rise. Every time you rise, you're going to a more sensitive environment. To go to a sensitive, more sensitive environment, you have to, quote, lose your old garment, your old perspective, your old sense of reality, to adapt to a new one. So yesterday's clean is today's dirty. This morning's clean is this afternoon's filth. So the neshama is constantly being cleansed to go to a higher world. The expression that's employed is to forget the whole sense of reality of this world. When a person passes away, one of the things the Shamas need to go through is to forget this world completely. To forget it. Not just to forget uh, particular actions that they may have done. To forget the whole sense of reality. Because in order to go to a higher reality, you have to lose the old sense of reality. The difference between simple cleansing and punishment is whether you're appreciating that you're going through this process. If you appreciate that you're going through this process, it hurts, but it's useful. When you don't appreciate you're going through the process, it's called hell. Because that's exactly what hell means. It doesn't seem to have any purpose. The problem, however, is as many times as one has been cleansed, they have to continue to be cleansed. And that never finishes till the end of time. Unless during our physical lifetime we did this higher level of tshuva that we talked about earlier. Because when you do the higher level of tshuva the sin has become a merit. If the sin has become a merit it doesn't need to be cleansed on any level. If we haven't done the higher level of tshuva but we've done the lower level of tshuva we're not punished. We have to be cleansed. And every neshama where the past in this world goes through a series of different steps of cleansing. The key that you have to understand 
is even though the Bible says God is vengeant, God is not vengeant. He acts vengeant. And the distinction is simple. God is not trying to punch us back. Because <laughs> He wants to punch us back or just make us disappear and that's it. <laughs> we won't exist. Hashem's will is to preserve us. You know, there's a physical law of conservation. There's a mystical law of conservation. After the flood, God vowed, I will never destroy anything. Everything in God's world has to be reformed, has to be preserved, and ultimately made good. The flood was an event of destruction. But after the flood, there's no such thing. Everything in God's world has to be ultimately elevated. So when a person goes through a hardship, a person goes through suffering, whether in this world or in the other world, it's always about repair. It's always about cleansing. It's never just about making a person suffer. When a person is being punished, they're also being cleansed. But they don't know it, so to them it feels like a punishment. When a person is being cleansed, they're aware that they're being cleansed. But it hurts. And the point is, the model is, the idea is that we have lived in this physical world. We've dealt with this physical world. And as we leave this physical world, we need to be cleansed in order for us to be able to ascend into higher worlds. When you should come here and go to all those things. I was about to say that. If we've sinned and not done tshuva, we need to be punished. If we've sinned and done tshuva, we don't have to be punished, but we need to be cleansed. The key you have to understand is that every single neshama chooses to come here because the reward exceeds the challenge. It's called Yerida Tzayra Chaliyah. The descent justifies, the descent brings us to a much, much higher level. The opportunity to connect to Hashem Himself as opposed to the so-called light of God or the knowledge of God that exists in Gan Eden is only here. And a Shama comes into this world and lives 70 years, done one mitzvah. And otherwise lived a life full of sin, or full of ignorance. It was worthwhile. The reward exceeds the challenges. Because the cleansing is temporary. The connection to God that even a single mitzvah creates is absolute and it's forever. So the Yom Yom tells us a soul will wait for thousands of years for an opportunity to come out into this world and do one mitzvah, notwithstanding the challenges, including the challenges described before where you're not even given a choice. A neshama is born into a family, into an environment where it knows nothing about Judaism, doesn't even know that there's something to choose. The neshama makes the choice. It's worth it to come down into this world for an opportunity to do as little as one good deed because the good deed is forever. And the negative is ultimately cleansed. Now, the cleansing has steps. But you said that there's no stopping to cleansing. You, but you, but it's not stopping to cleansing means you're growing in closeness to godliness. And the cleansing is simply to allow you to experience godliness more and higher. But there is no limit to that. Until the end of time. Till then it's oh. cleansed. Now, I want to discuss with you the various steps of cleansing, if you will, in a chronological order. First, I'm going to tell you the steps. And after I'm going to tell you the steps, I'm going to tell you how these things work. Okay? There's a concept in Kabbalah called Chibat HaKever. Chibat HaKever means that those funny, creepy, crawly guys meet you in the grave. Okay? The idea is as follows. There is something fundamental about the soul, about the neshama, which is consistent with the point we made three weeks ago when we talked about the neshama being a pnimi. 
the neshama being a pnimi, which means the neshama needs to express itself. There is nothing more painful for the soul than an inability to speak, to communicate. When a soul is in this world, its possibility for communication is only through the body. If the body is compromised, the soul suffers terribly. If the body is dead, the soul suffers even more. Until the body rots. This is why in our belief, in our religion, on a halachic level, and correspondingly on a mystical level, the best thing you do to a person who's passed away is put them in the ground. The sooner the better. And don't preserve. Because as the body deteriorates, the neshama is free to leave. But there's a period of time when the body has not yet deteriorated and the body associated for the, with the, the neshama associated with the body. It's a very painful time for the soul because the soul is trapped. Even for tzaddikim? We'll talk about tzaddikim at a different time. You're not a tzaddik and I'm not a tzaddik. I think. How do you know? Because I'm not a tzaddik but I'm a prophet. (laughs) So what happens is the person passes away. The body does not allow the neshama to speak through itself. But the neshama is there. It's a painful process. There's a mystical description of what happens during that period of time. But that alone is incredibly painful. The simple fact that the neshama is connected to a body and cannot, the body no longer allows the neshama to speak through it's incredibly painful, and that pain itself cleanses. Then the neshama, the body deteriorates. As the body deteriorates, and in spite of the fact that this may not please you, the quicker the better, tzaddikim notwithstanding, the neshama is free. And the neshama is free, it's redeemed from that imprisonment. But there's another thing. Now that you leave the body, you have to leave physical time and space. You have to leave the, the universe. You have to go to a spiritual realm. And that's a separate process. And there is a concept called kafakela. Kafakela is based on a Apostolic in Tanakh. And it means, technically speaking, the idea that the neshama is bouncing around like a billiard ball. It's nowhere. It doesn't have a body, so it can't express itself. It doesn't have a dead body, so it's not stuck. But it needs to leave. It needs to leave this reality. It needs to leave a perception which is physical. And until, until the neshama is able to leave this reality, the neshama is an enormous amount of pain. And that pain cleanses. And that cleansing is called kafakela, being bounced around, being nowhere, a nomad, but a nomad without any identity. So what the neshama wants is to leave the body as quickly as possible and to forget about this world as quickly as possible. Because the sooner it forgets about this world, the quicker it can go into a place where not having a body is not a liability. When the neshama leaves this space, there's a judgment, and then there's a cleansing. It involves virtually all neshamas at least a temporary visit to Gehenna, to hell, for punishment and cleansing depending on whether the person did tshuva or didn't do tshuva and how much tshuva they did, the, our belief is more than 12 months a neshama cannot suffer. The custom by Jewish people is we say Kaddish for a deceased relative only 11 months because saying Kaddish for a deceased relative 12 months is declaring that we believe that they were completed ushers. So if somebody preserves his body, so how do we calculate these 12 months? Okay, what? save it for a different time please. If you take Kaddish for a full 12 months, that means you're saying that your deceased relative 
was a perfect rush. So even though the neshama needs that Kaddish for the first year, because every Kaddish spares the neshama an hour and a half of Gehenim, that's why in our custom we say 16 Kaddishim a day to accommodate 16, one-sixth. You know we say Kaddish Derabona, the extra Kaddish? Because the Rebbe brings it in the back of the Hamid Every Kaddish saves the neshama an hour and a half. So 16 Kaddishim is 24 hours. That's our custom. Okay, so with the, the neshama needs our Kaddish. You don't say Kaddish the full 12 months because saying Kaddish 12 months is you're declaring that your deceased relative was the perfect Rosh. So we say Kaddish exactly for 11 months. In fact, the Rebbe Rashab said Kaddish once for one extra day. One day extra, and he felt very, very bad about it. We're very particular about this. It's hard to say for 12 months, no? I don't know. I'm telling you what our custom is. Because what's happening during that period of time is the neshama is being judged and punished and cleansed. Now, the tradition by us is that we do not visit the gravesite of a deceased relative for that period. Not visit? We do not visit the grave of a deceased relative for the first year. Only a relative. A very close relative. It's better not to, but especially a relative. You should better not. And the reason is very simple. Because you don't want to bring them back here. You want to let them go. And souls connect. And when you visit, you're holding them. And until a year passes, they continue to have a relationship with this world. So you do the neshama a favor by leaving it alone. The expression that I've heard used to describe this is, quote, the neshama is busy. Leave it alone. After the first year, there's only positive. And that's when we do go to the grave. In the belief that there's a connection between the neshama and the guf. But now the interference between spiritual and physical has been eliminated. And therefore it's, it's a completely different time. But you have to understand that when those 12 months pass, it's not like the neshama is clean. The neshama is constantly cleansed. But after the first 12 months, it's not a negative cleansing, it's strictly a positive cleansing, as the neshama ascends higher and higher and higher, from world to world, from Ganadin to Ganadin, as much as three times a day. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's a different concept. It's not to protect the neshama, but it's to help the neshama have an aliyah. On a yard site, and the Shama has a very significant ascent, more than it does every day. And the Kaddish helps the Nishama's ascent. And we don't just say Kaddish. We do mitzvahs on behalf of the Nishama. We do things for the Nishama, especially giving tzedakah. Because the Nishama takes those extra mitzvahs that we do for her and incorporates that into its aliyah. So it's Kaddish after the first year is entirely positive. Kaddish for the first year is very different. It's a very different Kaddish. Totally different Kaddish. Now, now that I've given you, so to speak, an image, and what I'm trying to communicate to you is God is not busy beating us up when we go to the other side. God is a loving God. And any experience of pain, whether it's physical or spiritual, is always has a positive side. It's cleansing. In Gehenim, it's unusual that since you don't know the point of it, it's experienced as a terrible suffering. But aside from that, the Nisham is being cleansed, and the Nisham values that cleansing, because it's this cleansing which allows it to ascend to a higher point, to a higher level. Now let me tell you something, let me go into the technicalities. Which means the suffering that the Nisham experiences when it's trapped in the body, before the body has decomposed, cleanses the Nisham from its, from its partaking of 
of permitted temptations. If we allow ourselves permitted temptations, and we know about permitted temptations, that they can be elevated. But if I did something, if I enjoyed a physical pleasure, and my intent was just to pleasure myself, and then I used the energy of that act in the service of God, so I've transformed it. But there's a little bit of a trace of a, of a mark in the neshama, and the suffering that the neshama goes through when it's still trapped in the body cleanses from permitted temptations that have elevated. When the neshama leaves the body, but has not left the space of this reality, this awareness, this consciousness, this sense of reality, and that's also terribly painful for the neshama. And again, fundamentally, the is the pain is from the trapped alone. The fact that the neshama is stuck in this space is what causes the neshama pain. This cleanses the neshama with al called And if I understand it correctly, this means all kinds of permitted temptations, the permitted temptations which we have not elevated. That's all. If I have indulged in a permitted temptation and fixed it, so the trace that's left over is elevated. If I have indulged in a permitted temptation and haven't elevated, that's kafakelem. Gehenim is for sin. When the neshama leaves this world and goes to hell, that's for actual sin. But if it's not an actual sin, which means to say, A, we've done tshuva for it. B, it was a permitted temptation. For permitted temptations, you don't go to hell. For permitted temptations, have to be cleansed. And the part of us that has to be cleansed, and the part of us that's been contaminated. So Akhtarabha mentions most sins, most sins, contaminate the emotional dimension of a person. Because most sins have to do with temptation. Temptation has to do with the emotions. So it's the emotional dimension of the soul that needs cleansing. But there are also some sins that affect the mind of the soul. And that is when we indulge, when we partake, when we immerse ourselves in areas of knowledge, areas of learning which are not kosher. Or knowledge. When we use our mind to pursue areas of knowledge that are klipa, even though it's klipas noiga, it's not treif, even if it's not prohibited, but it's not kosher, so the, the process of cleansing that the neshama has to go through affects not just the emotional dimension of the neshama, but also the intellectual dimension of the neshama. Okay, so what we've done tonight, we've done tonight is we've mirrored the class of two weeks ago. I want to just tell you what we've done. Four weeks ago, I talked to you about the essence of the neshama, and we used the word pniri. Three weeks ago, I talked to you about the, the neshama's partaking of toyed and mitzvahs. Last week, I talked to you about the animal's essence, and we employed the word tivi, natural. And tonight, we added what, what the animal soul does, whether it's permitted or it's prohibited, and we've gone all the way till the process of it being cleansed. And if you don't mind me concluding, with the same words again, the neshama will always elect to come here in spite of the challenges, in spite of the amount of tide and whisk and bleach it's going to have to absorb in being repaired because the reward for coming to the physical world and doing as little as one mitzvah infinitely exceeds the process of cleansing to put the neshama back where it was before it came here in the first place. Okay? Even one mitzvah, right? Because Avedas are temporary ultimately. A mitzvah suffer forever. Crocodile 
God is pretty capable. If he doesn't want, the Neshama doesn't know. I want to ask you a question, Mamish. If the Neshama is a part of God, why does it need tight and mitzvahs? You were here three weeks. But why should I need a part of God? I'm already a part of God. Because it doesn't know that it's a part of God. It's concealed from itself. Of course not. The Neshama doesn't know. The Neshama has a form. It's debatable. Ultimately, everything gets cleansed. Okay. Okay.